I'll stick a little more uh, to my notes. Um, the fundamental issue at the heart of the controversy over the marrow, uh, Boston and the General Assembly, was and continues to be, I think, in the life of evangelical Christianity, is the character of God. Who is the God who has revealed himself in Holy Scripture and supremely in the person of his son, Jesus Christ? And maybe you're thinking, well, Ian, um, that, that's Christianity 101. That's, that's so basic. Uh, we know the answer to that. Well, listen to John Owen. Uh, how few of the saints are experimentally acquainted with this privilege of holding immediate communion with the Father in love. With what anxious, doubtful thoughts do they look upon him? What fears, what questionings are there of his goodwill and kindness? At best, now listen to this, at best, many think there is no sweetness at all in him towards us, but what is purchased at the high price of the blood of Jesus. I still remember vividly at the close of an evening service in Cambridge, maybe 10, 12 years ago, I had a succession of very, very fine assistants, um, two of them now teaching at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, so it's, it's, it's not one of them. As I'm walking, after pronouncing the benediction, I'm walking up the central aisle, and I notice my assistant at the back of the church, his face white. He was a very fine young man, capable. And I thought, oh, I don't think he's well. I said, are, are you okay? And he looked at me and he said, I don't think I've ever really understood that before. So I'm thinking, what on earth did I, what, what, what was I on about? The opera ad extra trinitatis? No, I didn't say that. The extra Calvinisticum? No, I wasn't on that. Uh, what? I'm thinking. And he looked at me and he said, I don't think I've ever really grasped that the Savior did not come to win the Father's love, but as the gift of the Father's love. I found that stunning. He was a young man who had two previous degrees, a very good theological degree and a very good Reformed seminary. Uh, brought up in a godly home, a uh, fine young preacher. And here he is saying to me, I, I don't think I've really grasped that the Savior didn't come to secure the Father's love. He came as the gift of the Father's love. That's something that was very much to the forefront for John Owen. Um, he continues in, in volume 2, I think page 32, um, the Father's love is the fountain from whence all other sweetnesses flow. And this applies, Owen says, to unbelievers as well as to believers. The first movement of the gospel of God to unbelievers, the first movement of the gospel, says John Owen, the high Predestinarian. The first movement is to tell them that God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son. And it's only begotten. Don't fall for one and only and whatever else these modern translations come up with. Monogamy is huios. Only begotten. Read, read good literature. Well, maybe you're thinking, well, how does that square with preaching the law? Well, I almost want to just say, how do you think? My children would often come to me and say, Dad, they ask me a question, and I'll say, well, what do you think? And they're thinking, well, I've come to ask you what you think. And I'll say, yeah, well, okay, but tell me what you think. How does this square with preaching the gospel? Uh, with, how does this square with preaching the law? The law is not a theological abstraction. The law is God's law. I once preached through the whole 22 sections of the 119th Psalm. Didn't intend to, but I thought I'd do six, and the congregation said, no, no, you know, go on, go on. So I did the whole 22. And one of the repeated mantras was, what's the 119th Psalm about? Well, it's obvious. It's, 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 it's about the Torah, God's instruction, God's teaching. Well, it is. But what we often forget is it's God's teaching. The very last words of the psalm, I think, cast a, a backward shadow. I, I'm a poor sheep who's gone astray. That's why Thomas Goodwin says in Oh, goodness me. Uh, I, I think volume five, page number, can't remember. But volume five, if thou wouldst know what sin is, go to Mount Calvary. If thou wouldst know what sin is, he's not saying you don't go to Mount Sinai. Don't misunderstand Goodwin and don't misunderstand me. If you would know what sin is, Go to Mount Calvary. So, what does this controversy around the marrow of modern divinity have to say to us today, 2022, Bakersfield, the armpit of California, I'm told? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I traveled by train from Sacramento. I had some things to do in Sacramento the past weekend. Sacramento to Bakersfield. Brilliant trip, so spacious, you just could work away and read, but the scenery was not exactly compelling <laughs> com compared to my Bonnie Scotland. So what, what's going on here? Remembering the mantra, everything is about God. It's, you know, when people come to me and say, Ian, what's your view of baptism? I'll say, well, you will come to that. Ask me what my view of God is. Or tell me, Ian, how do I deal with that past, this pastoral situation? I'll say, well, let's, let's, let's think together about God. Say, well, can, can, we, can we not do that later? No, no, no. no, no. We, our starting point will determine where we go. In whatever question of area, theology, ethics, in whatever area of life, so I think the first question that the marrow brought up for Boston was, how do we preach the gospel? Or perhaps it has a more fundamental basic question attached to, how do I understand the gospel? What exactly is the gospel? 
I'm astonished when I ask people, and I do it not regularly, but occasionally I'll say, tell me, this is to Christian people, what is the gospel? And what people almost always don't tell me is that Jesus Christ is the gospel. We preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that is the great issue for Boston. Jesus Christ is the gospel. We must never preach the blessings of the gospel apart from the person of the gospel. Christ, to use Calvin's language, Christ comes to us clothed with the blessings of the gospel. Uh, 326, isn't it, in the Institutes? 326. Christ comes to us clothed with the blessings of the gospel. Let, Let me put it a little starkly that I hope you won't be offended by. We're never to preach justification. We're never to preach justification. We're never even to preach justification by faith alone. We're to preach Jesus Christ, our justifying righteousness, whom we receive by faith alone. That's not playing with words. Uh, A few years ago, one of my very good friends in the ministry um, sent me a sermon that his young assistant had preached on repentance. He said, tell me what you think. And there was a lot of good things in the sermon. You know, it's hard when you're just reading something, a transcript. Um, I just don't have transcripts. But um, I wrote back to my friend. My first problem with this sermon was this. We're never to preach Repentance. We're to preach repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same with grace. We preach grace as if we were crypto-Roman Catholics, as if grace were a, a chest and God scoops out of it blessings that he kind of dollops upon us. Jesus Christ is full of grace and truth. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich yet for your sakes he became poor. And that's Boston's great, great concern, that we preach Jesus Christ, who is full of grace. We don't isolate the doctrines of the gospel, the blessings of the gospel, from the person in whom all these blessings are to be found. So, when it comes to the issue of the General Assembly saying, the marrow is antinomian because it's saying um, people don't need to repent of their sins before they come to Christ. Boston says, you've misunderstood the whole teaching of the marrow. And I think at this point, Boston is right. The marrow is not saying we don't repent. The marrow is saying we can't repent till we come to Christ because repentance unto life is one of the gifts of God that are found in Jesus Christ, secured for us and won by us by his sin-atoning sacrifice on Calvary's cross by his resurrection and ascension. He gave gifts to men. We preach Christ. And I think that's something we shouldn't take for granted. 
I, I've sat under many good, reformed, evangelical, conservative men, Baptists, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, and the content, I think you well, yeah. Tell me about my Savior. I think that's why when you look at conferences all over the place in our kind of circles, conservative circles, when did you last go to a conference that focused exclusively on Jesus Christ? On the glory. You know that John Owen, John Owen called, better get the language right, the sole ground of all our hope. How would you finish that sentence? The sole ground of all our hope is the hypostatic union. I remember first reading that thinking, oh my. Now someone would say, oh, Puritans, the sole ground of all our hope is the cross. You don't understand the hypostatic union. The cross is meaningless. The cross is a facade and a charade without the glory in fact, Owen calls it the glory of our religion is the hypostatic union. Secondly, we can learn from the, the, the discussion on the marrow how easy it is for preachers to slip into evangelical moralism. Let me try and illustrate it this way. Um, you know, I, I used to hear when I was younger, you know, people saying, well, the epistles of Paul are, are really what's hard. You start with the Gospels. They're much easier. And the older I got and the more I thought and read, I thought, oh, no, no, no. The Gospels are profound. They're, they're like icebergs. You know, what you immediately see is actually a ballast of profundity and immensity undergirding it. So, for example, is, is, you know, we, we, we can preach through a gospel, and we end up f focusing on the various characters in the gospel. You know, we do a series on Simon Peter, and it's all about Peter. I'm not saying you shouldn't do a series on Simon Peter. I've done that. But the danger is we end up focusing on the various characters and what we can learn from them, forgetting that Jesus Christ is the central character throughout the gospels. I had another assistant, really one of the finest young men I've ever known. Uh, wonderful, studied mathematics at Cambridge, and then called into ministry. Um, came to Cambridge, a Reformed Baptist, and then the weight of the paradigm. The weight of the paradigm. But he preached a very fine sermon on Luke 7, 35 to 40, whatever it is at the end of the, past, at the, end of the chapter. The sinful woman who anoints Jesus. It, it, it was very fine. And I had to meet with him the next week to go through the sermon. I always hate that. I'm so conscious of how poorly, I, I don't mean this, I hope, in any other way than honestly, how poorly I minister God's word. But it's part of our responsibility, isn't it? So we met together, and I said, that was a very, very fine sermon. He said, thank you. I said, put into a sentence what your, your sermon was about. 
He said, oh, it was about the extravagance of the woman's love to the Savior. I said, that's exactly what your sermon was about. Now tell me what the passage is really about. <laughs> and you know, in an instant, he looked at me and he said, how could I have missed it? It's really about the extravagance of the Savior's love to the woman. Now, the extravagance of the woman's love to the Savior is there. But why did Luke write that? And in the context, no time to go into that. Um, and so, we, we, we need to be careful that we don't drift into an evangelical moralism. Um, if the Lord Jesus Christ is not the heart and core of our preaching, uh, we end up spending more time talking about the law, about justification, even about salvation, than about the Savior himself. One of my favorite passages, favorite verses in the whole Bible is when Mary and Joseph bring the infant. Just, just a stunning, the God-man robed, clothed in our frail flesh. And Simeon picks up this little bundle of humanity. And I can never remember what the year, I always remember what the KGV says, Lord, let us thou now thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. He sees this little bundle of humanity. And he sees the salvation of God. And that was one of Boston's great concerns. And what gave a new tincture to his preaching when he read the marrow? He understood that you don't start preaching the thunders of Sinai. You start where Owen says you start. God so loved the world. Now, don't misunderstand me. Of course we preach the law. But the danger is we can end up with a kind of static Lutheran understanding of the gospel. Law, gospel, law, gospel. I think the better way to see it is it's grace, law, gospel. God by voluntary condescension. God is under no necessity to come to us. To create Adam out of the dust of the earth. And... Reading the marrow, whatever Edward Fisher meant by it, Boston was seeing something that liberated him from a stylized understanding, right, I must preach the law until people are convicted, and then I can preach Christ. Rather than say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I think we need regularly to ask ourselves this question, how obvious is it to myself, and more importantly to my congregation, that Jesus Christ and him crucified is the dominant note and pulse beat of my life and my preaching? That's why I love reading theology, however abstruse, and we should be willing to, you know, read 
deep, profound theological works. But what I want to see in them is this pulse beat, however it's explicated of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Whether they're talking about divine simplicity, divine impassibility, um, the extra Calvinisticum, whatever it may be, I want to feel the pulse beat of a Savior who is full of grace and truth. That's why I think, maybe this has gone off piste a little bit, but when you ask younger men, and most of you are younger men, who have read anything of John Owen, almost certainly they'll say, I've read Mortification of Sin, volume six. Great work. I remember the first time I read it on a bus going to an intervarsity conference as a young student. I tried to fight back the tears. I just felt a scalpel cutting away the layers. I thought, this man knows my heart. I think we're more comfortable with mortification of sin than with the glory of Christ. Now, Please don't read Owen the way I read. I started with volume 10. You never start with volume 10. There's a reason why I had to start, but you never start with 10. I went from 10, 10, 6, 7, and whatever. You start with volume 2. Well, you could start with 1, the glory of Christ. Volume 2, communion with God. Volume 3, the Holy Spirit. That's, that's Owen. That, that's Owen. A related question pastoral question is, how do we pastor God's people? Now, I hope all of you are committed to shepherding the flock of Christ. I hope you're committed to do that, not just from the pulpit. He is no true pastor, says Calvin, who does not visit the flock of Christ house to house. Well, that's not our culture. Make it your culture. Scripture trumps culture. Whether it's Californian culture, Ethiopian culture, Scottish culture, Scripture trumps culture. But how do we pastor God's people? When Christians are struggling with sin, uh, with temptation to sin, with a failing marriage, with difficult rebellious children, with coldness of heart, with a censorious uh, heart and, and pride and jealousy and internet pornography and same-sex attraction and deceit... How are we to pastor them? This also was liberating for Boston. Think of Peter. Peter denies the Lord with curses. I, I, I don't know the man. When the Lord restores Peter, rehabilitates him, He doesn't say to Peter, Peter, do you promise from now on to be courageous and not cowardly? Do you promise now on to be a man of your word? You said you would never leave me. Do you promise to stand and having done all to stand? He says, Peter, do you love me? You see, the reason why Peter fell, and fell so cataclysmically, but for the grace of God. It was not a failure really in courage and boldness. That's how it appeared. You know, I've used this illustration before. You, you go to the doctor tomorrow and 
you, you, you say, doctor, um, I've got a really sore elbow. It, it, it's really causing me to, I can't sleep at night. Can you, and the doc, doctor examines you and he says, I know exactly what the problem is. Uh, it's your knee. And you say, the doctor says, I'm, I'm on the uh, National Health Service, so I don't need to pay. Well, I do pay through my taxes, so you don't want to go that route. But you say to the doctor, doctor, my knees are fine. Did you not hear me? It's my elbow. And the doctor says to you, the problem's coming out at your elbow. It's called referred pain. But the real problem is your knee. And that's what Jesus is doing with Peter. And so, behind the failure in courage was a failure in love. At the root of every sin, at the root of every sin is a failure to love. Christ. So how do we pastor people? Um, before I left Cambridge, and you, some of you are, I know will have more experience of this than I have. One of our fine young men in the church came to me and he said, Ian, I'm struggling with internet pornography. He's now by the grace of God, wonderfully delivered from that, married a wonderful, wonderful girl. Um, I had so little experience. Some sins trouble me deeply. That's never been a sin that's troubled me. In God's mercy, please God, it continues to do so. Other sins have troubled me. Don't misunderstand me. So I thought, what, what am I going to do? What, what am I going to do? And I thought, I'll do what John Owen thinks I should do. Because I think what John Owen says is what the Bible says. So I said to my young friend, what we're going to do over the next weeks and months, this will set up some uh, matters that will monitor your use of your computer and your phone, etc. We'll, we'll, we'll do all that. But every time we meet, we're going to look at the glory of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that Jesus Christ is himself the great gospel application? To quote John Owen again, set faith on Christ and you will die a conqueror. I'm, I'm going to quote Owen uh, at length in a moment because it's a wonderful quote and I hope you'll take it to heart and go home and read it. It's volume one, page 460 to 461. My wife says to me, how do you know all these things? I'm looking at her doing this intricate pat knitting pattern and it just seems worse than Hebrew syntax to me and I'm thinking, how? how do you know how to do that? And she says, well, I've done it so long. I said, if I didn't know these passages, I've read them hundreds of times. Jesus Christ is the great application of the gospel. Now, congregations are all often saying, oh, give, give me more application, Pastor, more application. Now, a sermon without application isn't a sermon. But are we helping our people to understand that the exposition of Christ is rich, heartwarming, mind-expanding, life-transforming application? If, if you read any of James's books on, say, uh, impassibility, if that doesn't help you pastor your people, you've not read it properly. It's not an abstract... Um, theological truth that we file away and think, right, yeah, I've got it, and I know what Aquinas says, and I know how 
the Orthodox Reformed divines understand this. It's the doctrine of God. God is the great application of the gospel. Let me quote to you these words of Owen as we hurry on. I'm okay. He, he writes in volume one uh, on the glory of Christ, page 460 to 461. Take these words, ponder them. I, I, when I first read them oh, a long time ago, I thought, why? I remember saying to Sinclair Ferguson, do you know that passage? What a stupid question. What a stupid question to ask him. He just smiled and said, yes. <laughs> Let us live in the constant contemplation of the glory of Christ, and virtue will proceed from him to repair all our decays, to renew a right spirit within us, and to cause us to abound in all duties of obedience. When the mind is filled with thoughts of Christ and his glory, when the soul thereon cleaves unto him with intense affections, they will cast out or not give admittance unto those causes of spiritual weakness and indisposition. And nothing will so much excite and encourage our souls as a constant view of Jesus and his glory. So someone comes to you uh, tonight, you go back, and one of your church members, believer, comes, says, Pastor, I'm, I'm struggling with this, this issue and with that issue and um, this area of obedience. I, I, can you please help me? And you say to them, well, let's think about the glory of our Savior. Contemplation of the glory of Christ, says Owen, will cause us to abound in all duties of obedience and either cast out or not give admittance unto those causes of spiritual weakness and indisposition. So my young friend struggling with internet pornography, we, week after week after week, we looked at passages in the Gospels and the Epistles, Colossians 1, Revelation. You, you, you know all the passages we would go to. And... <coughs> I just thought, yeah, our great need is to be taken up with Christ. And again, that's what Boston's saying, his people, not only from the pulpit, but when he visited them in their homes, and that was a big thing. It's always been a big thing in Scottish Presbyterianism. Um, I, I, I would visit four afternoons and three evenings every week for 20 years, and folk thought, folk in England would say, oh, that's amazing. I'm thinking, well, everybody I know does that. Not doing anything that no, nobody else is doing roundabout me. And people felt the tincture. He's, he's preaching Christ. He's, he's, he's holding out the Lord to us. Now, of course, at times he had to say hard things. He had to remind people of the seventh commandment or the fourth commandment or the ninth commandment. Of course he did. Of course he did. But he starts with God. He starts with God. 1998, I was in Brazil speaking at a conference. And I met a wonderful family, the Davis family. Have you ever heard of the Davis family? Any of you? They're 
they're, they're everywhere. This family were Americans. They had gone first to Africa, but they had to leave because of the Mau Mau uprising in Kenya. They went to Brazil. They were agricultural missionaries. They, they farmed. Um, the father of the family and one of his boys was, were murdered by robbers because they wouldn't pay um, protection money. That left uh, the mother with three children. Uh, the two boys had ten children and the daughter had seven. So I got to know this family. And, you, you know, some people you just make an immediate connection with. And uh, maybe it's the accent, but um, they really warmed to me, and I warmed to them, and we had a wonderful time. They'd driven 36 hours from Manaus in the Amazon, 36 hours they'd driven to get to this conference in uh, Sao Paulo province. I came home to Scotland, and I got a phone call from one of the organizers of the conference to say that Jim, who had been married a year and three months, had been killed in a car crash on the way back from the conference. Well, I thought, I need to contact his parents, Harley and Marky. And I managed somehow in God's goodness to track them down through a field telephone in the Amazon basin. And I'm thinking, how, how am I going to minister comfort to this couple? Your son's been killed in this terrible accident. I'm going to say, you know, I'm thinking. So I phone and Marky, Jim's mother, comes on the phone. I said, it's, it's Ian phoning from Scotland. Oh, she says, Ian, how good of you to phone. Our pastor has just flown in. The pastor had to fly four hours up the Amazon. Our pastor has just flown in. And God is wonderfully comforting our hearts. He's reading to us Philhelmus Abrakel on predestination. Philhelmus Abrakel was a second Reformation Dutchman, 1670, 1680s. I'm thinking, only God can do that. This is this grieving couple. And how is, how is God ministering to them? He's taking a 17th century Dutch Puritan, really, and his writings on predestination. That's what Boston is wanting to say to his people. And it's the marrow that liberates him to do that. He, he breaks out of a stylized view of what preaching is, a programmatic view. And he realizes that as a pastor, he is to bring who God is in Christ to the people and to say, behold your God. That's what the whole Bible's about, isn't it? But whatever you are, I'm going to speak tonight, I hope, on Isaiah 33. Um, but whatever you are, it's behold your God. You may be dealing with, you know, as we'll look at Sennacherib and Hezekiah, and you could be dealing with whatever and wherever, but it's behold your God. The last thing I want to say is, how do we help our people think about the Christian life? 
Now, what do I mean by that? I think many, maybe even most Christians, think about the Christian life sequentially. First, we are justified. Then we are sanctified. And after we are sanctified, we are glorified. We think of the Christian life sequentially. And there's a truth to that, isn't there? We are to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a deeper truth undergirding that, isn't there? That we're to think of the Christian life not first sequentially, but synchronously, because in Christ, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And the whole of the Christian life is the work of the Spirit in us, unpacking and applying to us what we already possess because we possess Jesus Christ. He is our wisdom from God, even our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And Boston believed that reading the marrow helped him to preach what Calvin calls and what Sinclair Ferguson uses as the title of his book, The Whole Christ. The Whole Christ. In union with Christ, we receive the whole Christ with all the blessings and benefits of the gospel. Now, the marrow of modern divinity um, is writing against a backcloth of legalism on the one hand and antinomianism on the other. And this is the calling of every Christian pastor to chart not a middle way, but a better way, because legalism and antinomianism flow out of the same error. They're actually Siamese twins who look very different, but are actually the same thing. They both flow out of the same error. They don't understand the gospel. The legalist doesn't understand the gospel. And I think actually some legalists are true believers, but they're better than what they say they are. Legalists don't understand the gospel because they think that they have a part to play. They have something to do, to deserve, to merit what God has to give them in Jesus Christ. Maybe it's repentance. Maybe it's even faith. Faith can become a work. Faith can become a work. And antinomians, well, they, they, they misunderstand the gospel too. They think, you know, we're no longer under law but under grace. They misunderstand the context. Um, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Romans 10.4, Boston's bigger than us. Christ is, the law of God reaches its omega point in Jesus Christ who has kept the law perfectly for us, and who, by his Spirit in us, enables us to become 
lovers of God's law. We no longer see it as that which stands before us as a, a mountain to climb, but rather with David in the Psalms. Oh, how I love you, Lord. David was a new covenant believer before there was a new covenant. You can ask me about that later. Um, and the marrow is infelicitous in places. And when the General Assembly extracted paragraphs and sections from the marrow, they were able to say, look, this is antinomianism. Look, they're making assurance. Take assurance. They're making assurance the essence of saving faith. Now, the Westminster Confession is quite clear. Or is it? Or is it? Is assurance the essence of saving faith? Well, people say, well, the Confession's got a section on assurance, and it says that we may be troubled, uh, and after difficulties and trials and troubles, we, we may or even may not, this side of glory, reach a full assurance of faith. The Marrow and Boston said, Assurance belongs to the essence of saving faith. I don't think Boston especially was saying anything differently from the Westminster Confession. Boston was distinguishing between what assurance is as to its nature and what assurance is as to its experience and practice. But the General Assembly extracted these paragraphs and said, look, they're contrary to our confessional standards. It's a warning. It's a warning against plundering what you don't know to try and prove the little that you do know. I found this when I was reading people on the eternal subordination of the Son. I just would shake my head thinking, you know, they'll, they'll quote Athanasius or Gregory or Basil or whoever, uh, and a uh, bit of Calvin and a bit of this. I'm thinking, you know, I, I can do that. You need to read it in the round, read it in the whole, and you will not become an eternal subordinationist. That's because I, I've tried to read some things. One of the best things about studying theology at Edinburgh University was we did a lot of, of patristics. I teach patristics. I feel more out of my depth there than anywhere else. But it's wonderful to be out of your depth and just to feel the wonder, the, the immensity and the infinity of who God is and just to end up to say with your students sometimes, oh, the depths. I got on with them, see. For Thomas Boston, the marrow, with its infelicities, and I think with its hypothetical universalism here and there, Boston did not subscribe to that. Boston actually didn't think it was there. Um, this is a pygmy throwing a little pebble at a giant. 
think if he had known the wider theological context, maybe it would be different. But maybe not. And for me, the ultimate issue in pastoral ministry is this. Whatever I'm saying, do I leave my people with this thought? How great is the God we adore? That's what I want to leave people with. I don't want to play down the demands of God's law. Far from it. Uh, Shall we uh, nullify the law, says Paul at the end of Romans 3? By no means. We uphold the law. But isn't it striking that the Lord Jesus Christ says in, in Matthew 5, do not think that I've come to abolish the law. Why did Jesus say that? Do not think that I've come to abolish the law. Because people were listening to him and saying, where's, where's the Mosaic law here? And Jesus says, don't, don't think I've come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. And the law was given in a context of grace. And so Paul, interestingly, as far as I can see, was never accused of being a legalist. But he was accused of being an antinomian because he preached Christ with such unfettered delight. And people are saying, well, where's the law in all of this? And that's why so when the reformers responded, I'll finish with this, with the Church of Rome listened to Luther and Calvin especially, I think, on justification by grace alone through faith alone. The response of Rome was this. This is a recipe for moral chaos. If you are saying to people that God justifies the ungodly, accounts them righteous in his sight, for time and eternity, through faith alone in Jesus Christ, that's a recipe for moral disaster and chaos. Remember how Calvin responded? You know not the gospel, duplex gratia, the double grace, when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you receive a whole Christ, not just a justifying Christ, but a sanctifying Christ. That's why we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. There is an inevitability. No good works. No in Christ. So I think the simple message of the marrow of modern divinity is preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Tell them about the God who so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. And tell them that that becomes the fulcrum that causes the heart to respond, Lord, how might I live then to please and honor you, keep my commandments?